0: This episode will discuss topics that could be potentially upsetting to some people, including suicide and the abuse of children. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Strange and Interesting Podcast, a show about folklore, the paranormal, urban legends, and pretty much anything else that I find strange and interesting. I am your host, Al. October has always been my favorite time of the year. I love the colors of autumn, the mild weather, and most of all, Halloween. I have fond memories from my childhood of picking out a pumpkin, carving my jack-o'-lantern, selecting a costume, and going trick-or-treating. Then, there were the TV specials that only came around this time of year. I mean, who doesn't like the classics, such as It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown? One of my favorites was Garfield's Halloween Adventure which had everyone's favorite fat cat and canine sidekick go out trick-or-treating only to find themselves chased by the ghosts of a pirate crew. As I recall, the animation for this one was actually pretty scary for the time or at least it was to my young mind. There is also The Simpsons' Treehouse of Horror. I always thought the quality of this one varied, though, with some segments barely qualifying as a Halloween special. I'm not going to dive too deeply into the history of Halloween, as that topic has been explored on countless other podcasts and documentaries. In brief, Halloween is believed to be a mix of Celtic, pagan, and early Catholic customs that have been through a variety of changes over the centuries. The original purpose of Halloween celebrations may have had to do with the end of summer and preparation for the coming winter. One of the most popular Halloween traditions, dressing up in costume, is believed to have been done for the purpose of frightening away hostile spirits. Or to disguise yourself just in case a vengeful ghost came by. Another popular tradition, trick or treating, may have had its origins in mummers' plays that were popular in the United Kingdom. These plays had small groups of actors wander from house to house performing in exchange for food or gifts. Murmur's plays were not limited to Halloween, and the actors that put on these plays would perform for several different festivals throughout the year. Another theory is that trick-or-treating may have its roots in a practice known as souling, in which children or poor people would dress up, pretend to be ghosts, and go door-to-door offering to pray for the dead in exchange for a biscuit known as a soul cake. The jack-o'-lantern, perhaps one of the most well-known symbols of Halloween, comes from an Irish folktale. I've heard a few different versions of this tale, but in each version, it involves a man named Jack who tricks the devil into a trap. Jack says he will let the devil go but only if he promises to never take his soul to hell, and the devil agrees. Jack goes on to live a life of sin, and because of this, when he dies, he is not allowed to enter heaven. But due to his deal with the devil, Jack is not allowed to enter hell either. He is given a glowing lump of coal to light his way and is forced to wander the earth for eternity. Jack-o'-lanterns were originally carved in turnips or other root vegetables. They were believed to protect from evil spirits, or in later traditions, represent souls in purgatory. Eventually, the pumpkin became the medium of choice to use when carving these decorations. The popularity of Halloween in America grew in their early to mid-1900s. Halloween night used to be seen as a time of mischief, with youth engaging in activities that ranged from mostly harmless pranks to destructive acts of vandalism. In order to minimize delinquent behavior, some communities began to organize parties these gatherings featured traditional games like bobbing for apples. The practice of trick-or-treating became popular as well and these efforts seemed to help decrease damage done by mischievous children. But while many people today see Halloween as a time of scary fun, it has not always been so. Even in modern times, Halloween has been accused of being the devil's holiday. This brings us to today's topic, the Satanic Panic. One of the reasons I wanted to explore this topic is because of season four of the popular Netflix series, Stranger Things. In the first part of the season, the town holds a meeting to discuss the recent murder of a student. Jason Carver, one of the star athletes of Hawkins High School, gives a passionate speech about how he believes her killing, as well as the mall fire that occurred in Season 3, and other murders in the recent past, were actually linked to satanic rituals. He claims to know the truth, and even accuses the police of not wanting the town to know what is really going on he even mentions satanic cults spreading throughout the country jason accuses the hellfire club a group of students who get together to play dungeons and dragons of being a cult and claims their leader eddie munson is the one behind the murder and also compares eddie to a cult leader Many of the townsfolk seem to accept Jason's wild claim, despite the lack of evidence. And if there is anything that sums up the satanic panic, it is the willingness to believe the unbelievable without proof. The town hall scene actually hit home for me. I grew up in the 80s. And as a fan of both heavy metal music and Dungeons and Dragons, I remember this time well. To some degree, the Satanic Panic never really ended. But before we go on, let's take a quick look at the name, The Hellfire Club. Some people might remember The Hellfire Club as a group of supervillains from Marvel Comics X-Men series. The name actually goes back further. There were several hellfire clubs established in Britain during the 1700s. The first of these clubs was established by Philip I Duke of Wharton. This club was a place for men to discuss a variety of topics including politics, religion, and philosophy. The group was known to perform mock religious rituals, but did so more for shock value rather than as a sign of allegiance to the devil. Later groups taking the name were known to engage in pseudo-pagan rituals, but like Duke Phillips Club, these were unlikely any sort of serious religious worship. Other immoral activities were believed to occur at their meetings as well, including drunkenness and prostitution. Moving forward to modern times, the Satanic Panic is an example of a Moral Panic. A Moral Panic is defined as the widespread fear of some sort of social ill. These fears are often spread by politicians, media figures, and religious groups. The problem with moral panics is that the thing to be feared is usually either greatly exaggerated or completely unfounded. A good example is video games. Whenever there is a school shooting in the United States, one of the first scapegoats politicians like to blame is violent video games especially first-person shooters. The subject of video games as a cause of violent behavior is actually not a recent area of interest, and studies on the effect of violent video games on a young person's behavior go back at least to the 1990s when the first Mortal Kombat game gained popularity. Even more studies began to take place after video games became capable of showing even more realistic displays of violence. The conclusion of many studies has been that while exposure to violent video games and media can cause aggressive behavior, there is no evidence that this will lead to acts of real life violence. A person might yell a few swear words after losing an online game of Call of Duty and maybe throw his controller, but the chances of them picking up a gun and going out to shoot people for real is slim to none. The Satanic Panic in the United States was believed to have begun in 1980 with a book called Michelle Remembers, Written by Canadian psychiatrist Lawrence Pasder. In nineteen seventy three, he started treating a woman named Michelle Smith for depression. She remarked that she felt like she had something important to tell him, but couldn't remember what it was. Pazder used a treatment called recovered memory therapy on Smith. This controversial therapy used hypnosis, and it was eventually discredited. While going through this therapy, Smith recalled being abused by her mother when she was five years old. She claimed her mother took her to satanic rituals, one of which supposedly lasted 81 days straight and took place in a local cemetery. During some of these rituals, she would be put in a cage, forced to watch human sacrifices, and would be smeared with the blood of the people she was forced to watch die. Pastor's book was successful, but it did not go unchallenged. Smith's father claimed that he could refute his daughter's claims and that the book made no mention of Michelle's two sisters. There are also no accounts of Pazder attempting to contact the police to verify Smith's story. In 2002, Kerr Kulain, a famous pagan author and former police officer, noted how unlikely it was that a satanic ritual involving supposedly hundreds of people could go on continuously for 81 days in a cemetery near a residential area, without anyone noticing it or reporting it to the police. Smith also had no noticeable absences from school during this time, and the only abuser she mentions by name was her mother. Kuhulein also notes how some of the accounts in the book mirror pastors' experiences working in West Africa, as well as popular culture of the time. This last observation makes sense, as there were several noteworthy movies released in the late 60s and 70s involving Satanism, such as Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, The Exorcist, and The Devil's Reign. While Michelle Remembers did have its critics, unfortunately, for the most part, the book went without criticism, and many people accepted it at face value for years to come. After his book gained popularity, Pazder claimed to be an expert on satanic ritual abuse. This perception led him to being called in as an expert witness for one of the most well-known cases of supposed Satanic Ritual Abuse in the United States and that was the McMartin Preschool Trial. This trial was one of the earlier cases in the daycare abuse hysteria of the 1980s. As a side note, a little bit of background. I have been told that, supposedly, there was a time in American history when the average family could get by on a single income dad could go to work and be able to make enough money for mom to stay at home and take care of the kids but that began to change in the late 60s and early 70s during this time more women needed to go back into the workforce this led to an increase in anxiety as parents needed to adjust to leaving their young children with complete strangers for several hours a day several days a week Sadly, this anxiety led to many false accusations against daycare workers. It should be noted, though, that not all of these accusations were instances of alleged satanic ritual abuse. The McMartin Preschool Trial took place in Southern California. In 1983, a woman named Judy Johnson accused one of the members of the school a man named Ray Buckley, of abusing her son because she noticed he started having painful bowel movements. This led to an investigation that started in 1984. Several other members of the school were charged as well. As the investigation started, it was estimated that around 360 children had been abused. Ultimately, Only about 40 of these children would go on to testify in court. The accusations of satanic ritual abuse brought against the McMartin Preschool were strange to say the least. The children were supposedly flushed down toilets that took them to secret rooms. They were forced to participate in orgies. They saw witches fly through the air, rode in a hot air balloon, and were supposedly taken to secret tunnels below the school. There was even an effort to locate these tunnels. Of course, the search turned up nothing. Part of the problem with some of the testimonies is that young children are susceptible to manipulation and their responses can be influenced by an interviewer. Dr. Maggie Bruck, a professor of child psychology at the John Hopkins School of Medicine, wrote that young children will try to come up with an answer based on feedback from an interviewer. If an interviewer, for example, tells Tommy that Timmy saw a teacher touch their classmate in an inappropriate place and then asks if he remembers it too, then Tommy is more likely to claim he witnessed this event even if he did not. To prove this point, during the trial, the McMartin's lawyer demonstrated this by having one of the children identify action movie star Chuck Norris as one of the abusers. Later review of the tapes and the techniques used showed that the people who interviewed the children used improper methods that produced forced results. Some of the persecutors were accused of withholding evidence that would have exonerated the defendants. The original accuser had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia before the alleged events took place. But, sadly, this information was not properly presented in the trial, and her lawyers even argued that she developed the mental illness as a result of the trial. Judy Johnson died due to complications from alcoholism in 1986, so she would never see the trial's conclusion. By 1990, all of the accused had been acquitted of any crimes. Unfortunately for Ray Buckley, he still ended up serving five years in prison without ever being convicted of a crime. I've been throwing that term, satanic ritual abuse, around like candy on Halloween night. So this would probably be a good time to define what this term means. Before we continue... I would like to make it clear that I recognize cult abuse and abuse by religious leaders does exist and it is a real problem. However, in the context of the Satanic Panic, the type of abuse we are discussing did not occur and the majority of those who were accused of these activities were eventually proven innocent. Satanic Ritual Abuse or SRA for short, is described as emotional, sexual, or physical abuse that is inflicted as part of a ritual to the devil. The victims are usually children or young women. Oftentimes, the victim might not remember the abuse and is only able to recall it under hypnosis or while undergoing mental health counseling. Satanic ritual abuse is often so gruesome that it borders on unbelievable. Various accounts describe torture, human trafficking, beatings, genital mutilation, rape, threats of violence, animal sacrifice, drug abuse, cannibalism, necrophilia, and women being forced to have babies specifically for the purpose of being sacrificed. However, the perpetrators of satanic ritual abuse rarely work alone or in small groups. SRA is said to be enabled by a nationwide network of abusers who consist of people at all levels of society. This network can include everyone from working-class individuals to people in positions of power and authority. The tendency for people in positions of influence to be part of these satanic networks is key to the conspiracy because, at least in the eyes of the true believers of SRA, it explains how these activities can go on without being brought to widespread public attention. Perhaps the most disturbing thing about Satanic ritual abuse is how widespread the hysteria became despite the lack of evidence. Proponents of the conspiracy claimed that the supposed network of Satanists responsible for abuse numbered in the hundreds of thousands and sometimes even in the millions. Televangelists during the 1980s often claimed large numbers of people every year were murdered or subjected to rape and torture in the name of the devil. I even remember one televangelist claiming that every Halloween roving bands of Satanists would kidnap and sacrifice homeless people and other social outcasts who wouldn't be missed. But, when investigators started turning a critical eye to these claims, they found no collaborative evidence. If all these people were being murdered by satanic cults, then where were the bodies? Where were the police reports? Where were the missing person reports? Where were the news articles? Are we really to believe that thousands of people involved in a nationwide conspiracy to commit crimes and murder, never made a mistake, never failed to cover their tracks, were never witnessed or caught in the act, and always managed to destroy every shred of evidence that could expose them? But for true believers of SRA, this lack of evidence was seen as all the proof they needed. After all, how else could they commit thousands of crimes each year without leaving any evidence behind? Surely, it would take an army of a million well-organized cultists working hand-in-hand with corrupt police officers and government officials in order to pull this grand feat off. Daycare workers were not the only ones who came under fire during the Satanic Panic the music industry faced scrutiny as well. The Parents Musical Research Center was founded in 1985. It was created by a group of four women nicknamed the Washington Wives as they were married to politicians or other influential men in the Washington, D.C. area. Their goal was to increase control over access to music that they found objectionable. Pop stars such as Madonna and Cindy Lauper came under attack for overly sexual lyrics. Rap stars often came under attack for vulgar language as well as glorifying violence and drugs. Heavy metal bands were often accused of glorifying all of the above plus having lyrics that were occult in nature. Many artists feared censorship, and three musicians stepped forward to testify in a Senate hearing. Frank Zappa, John Denver, and Twisted Sister frontman Dee Snyder. In the end, the impact of the Parents Musical Research Center was minimal at best. They didn't get the music rating system they wanted, but did get record companies to voluntarily put advisory stickers on albums with content that was potentially objectionable. It can be argued, though, that these stickers actually helped record sales rather than discourage them. After all, nothing makes a teenager want something more than knowing that his parents might find it offensive. I should know! I was a teenager who liked heavy metal at one time, too! I would argue that the mass media probably did more harm than the Parents Musical Research Center did. Many televangelists of the era would preach about the evils of popular music, role-playing games, and horror movies the song and dance was always the same. Rock music and pop music would lead you to drugs or sexual deviancy. Role-playing games would make you a Satanist. And horror movies would turn you into a mass murderer. And if you ever went to a county fair during the 80s or early 90s, there is a good chance that you ran into someone passing out pamphlets by Jack Chick. These comics featured a story about someone getting into drugs, rock music, dungeons and dragons, or other sinful behaviors, and in the end either going to hell or being saved. Other Chick tracks featured historical errors and outright falsehoods, such as a tract on Halloween showing a druid with an onk, which... an Egyptian symbol not a Celtic one the same tract also claims Druids would go from house to house seeking victims for human sacrifice and they would leave a pumpkin jack-o'-lantern at homes that complied with their demand in a way to protect that house from demons and evil spirits throughout the night there's several blatant lies here first Pumpkins are native to North America. Second, Druidic religion declined around the 7th century, and pumpkins did not come to Europe until the 16th century. The term jack-o'-lantern, and the practice of carving them in pumpkins, didn't appear until the 1800s. As for human sacrifice, that too has been a subject of much debate the Druids left no writings on their beliefs. The written accounts we do have of their religion and culture often come from Greek and Roman sources. These two cultures were often at odds with these people, so many historians believe that the accounts we have were either exaggerated or false in order to make the Celts seem primitive and barbaric. The ancient Greeks and Romans were also known for coming up with similar slanders about Jews and Christians, so the thought that they might do this with the Celts as well is not all that far-fetched. Media figures helped fan the flames. Several talk show hosts of the time aired episodes on satanic ritual abuse, and recovered memory therapy. One notable example was Geraldo Rivera's 1988 special Devil Worship: Exposing Satan's Underground. This special was criticized for focusing on sensationalism as opposed to actual journalism. And in 1995, Geraldo would issue an apology and retract his claims. But perhaps one of the biggest punching bags of the Satanic Panic was Dungeons and Dragons. The game was blamed for all sorts of terrible things, such as murder, suicide, and bringing children into the occult. One of the earliest controversies involving D and D occurred in 1979. Private investigator William Deere was called to investigate the disappearance of James Dallas Egbert III. Egbert was a teenager from Ohio and considered a child prodigy. By the age of 16, he was attending college at Michigan State University. He disappeared on August 15th. Egbert had taken an interest in Dungeons & Dragons and Deer thought that this may have played a role in his disappearance. The media latched onto this theory, and things just exploded from there. There were rumors of students playing D and D in the steam tunnels below the college, and that Egbert may have disappeared during a live-action role-playing session. However, Egbert would turn up in September when he called Deer from New Orleans so he could be picked up and returned to his family. Sadly though, Egbert would end up committing suicide the next year. In 1981, author Rona Jaffe published a novel inspired by this disappearance called Mazes and Monsters. The following year, it was adapted into a movie. For the sake of full disclosure, I have to admit I've only seen the movie, so I do not know how accurate it is to the book. But the film stars legendary actor Tom Hanks as Robbie Wheeling. Robbie is a college student who is obsessed with a role-playing game called Mazes and Monsters. His group decides to have a live-action role-playing session in a cave. During the session... Robbie has a hallucination of slaying a monster and starts to believe that he's his Mazes and Monsters character. He also has a psychotic episode involving his missing brother, Hall. Robbie becomes obsessed with finding out what happened to his brother and believes that if he jumps off one of the World Trade Center buildings and casts a spell, he will be reunited with him. He travels to New York where he is confronted by a mugger. Robbie has another hallucination, sees the mugger as a monster, and stabs him with his pocket knife. This causes Robbie to snap out of his delusion just long enough to call his friends. They arrive, just in time, to stop him from jumping off the observation deck of the South Tower. At the end of the movie... Robbie is living with his parents. He still believes himself to be his Mazes and Monsters character. He thinks his house is an inn. He believes his parents are innkeepers. And he believes he has a magic coin that he uses to pay the innkeepers and that reappears in his coin pouch the next morning. This idea of role-playing games causing people to lose touch with reality also caught hold. As another example, author John Kanye published a novel in 1981 called Hobgoblin. This story is about a teenager who becomes obsessed with a role-playing game of the same name that is based on Irish mythology. In 1983, Canadian director Ota Richter released a movie called Skullduggery which also features a character who enjoys role playing games and then loses his grip on reality. This leads him to commit several murders. I have only read a plot summary of the movie and it seems this one though does actually have an element of the supernatural to it. Fortunately works like Mazes and Monsters, Hobgoblin, and Skullduggery, and the panic they caused did not harm the popularity of Dungeons & Dragons. If anything, it actually boosted sales of the game. Remember what I said before, nothing makes a teenager want something more than knowing his parents might object to it. In 1984, William Deere published a book telling the story of Egbert's disappearance called The Dungeon Master. The reason he waited several years is because Egbert had asked him not to reveal the circumstances of his disappearance. I remember reading this book back in college, and one of the accounts that always stuck with me was one where Deere paid a couple of college students to run him through a game of Dungeons & Dragons, which he did in an effort to better understand the game and hopefully gain some insight into Egbert's disappearance. He admitted he didn't know what to expect, and if my memory serves me correctly, he wondered if the dungeon master would show up dressed like a wizard. He was surprised to find that the people who answered the ad he placed looked like just a couple of normal college students. Now, this might seem odd to today's audience, but keep in mind that this was 1979, and Dungeons and & Dragons was first published in 1974. Role-playing games were still young, and information about them was harder to come by than it is today. In his book, Deere revealed that Egbert had attempted suicide on two occasions. During his time in college, he struggled with pressure from his parents, loneliness, depression, and drug addiction. It is believed that he was also gay at a time when coming out as homosexual could be potentially dangerous and meant possibly getting rejected by your family with no place to go. Deer recalls that Egbert hid at various friends' homes before taking a bus to Louisiana. He also believes that the media blew certain aspects of the disappearance out of proportion. Another famous crusade against Dungeons & Dragons began in 1985. In 1982, the only son of Patricia Pulling committed suicide. Since her son was a fan of role-playing games, she blamed D&D for her son's death and believed that her son's character was put under a curse, and somehow this curse caused her son to kill himself in real life. Pulling went so far as to sue both the school principal and even TSR, the makers of Dungeons and Dragons at the time. After both lawsuits were dismissed, she formed Bothered About Dungeons & Dragons, or BAD for short. Pauline would also go on to get a private investigator's license and, like Lawrence Pazder before her, claimed to be an expert witness. Gee, apparently it didn't take much for people to declare themselves experts back then. Pulling enjoyed limited success in getting her message out through mainstream media, but most of her information was spread through conservative Christian outlets. She attempted to get role-playing games banned or forced to come with warning labels claiming that playing these games could lead someone to murder or suicide. She also advised in cases where the defendant claimed the D&D defense or that Role playing games somehow caused the person to commit a crime. Pulling also compiled a list of several people that she believed whose deaths were supposedly directly related to role playing games. Despite this exposure, much of her one woman crusade against role playing games was a failure. Obviously, she failed to get the bans and warning labels she sought. All of the gaming-related lawsuits she served as a witness to were thrown out or lost. Her methods of gathering information and arriving at her statistics were also called out for being vague, misleading, or flat-out wrong. One of Pullman's main claims that... D&D caused people to commit suicide was disproven by several studies. In fact, it was found that people who were involved in role-playing games as a hobby commit suicide at a lower rate than people who don't play these games. The only victory, if you can even really call it that, the Satanic Panic and its proponents had over Dungeons & Dragons was that TSR removed demons and devils from their products and instead referred to them as Tanari and Batezu. Several of the outer planes in D&D mythology that drew their names from real-world mythology or religion were also changed. For example, the Nine Hells became Bator, Nirvana, became Mechanis, The Happy Hunting Grounds were renamed the Beastlands. Mount Olympus became Aboria, and the Seven Heavens became Mount Celestia. For me, I look back at the Satanic Panic as a time of craziness and insanity. In some ways, I was lucky because my parents never bought into it. Even though I liked heavy metal music and role-playing games, they never stopped me from picking up the latest Iron Maiden album or hosting a D&D session at my house. I remember seeing televangelists and media figures jumping at any chance to connect the things I liked with something so evil. I had to laugh at the foolishness, but yet, I also had to shudder at the fact that so many people believed these lies. I would also like to point out that when my friends and I were playing Dungeons & Dragons, we knew it was make-believe. We knew it wasn't real. We were pretending to be wizards and knights and elves and dwarves fighting dragons and giants and other monsters. The proponents of the satanic panic, however, they were the ones living in the world of devils and witchcraft and magic and demon summoning. So when you look at it from that perspective, who were the sane ones and who were the crazy ones? Belief in the satanic panic began to decline in the late 1980s and started to fade away by the early 90s. Most people began to wise up to what proponents of this panic were doing. Those who blamed all of society's misfortunes on an underground network of devil worshippers showed confirmation bias, as they only recognized information that supported their view, regardless of how factual it was, while ignoring anything that disproved their point. One major and very legitimate criticism of the Satanic ritual abuse hysteria was that these cases, which were overwhelmingly false, had the potential to draw attention and resources away from actual cases of murder and abuse. Our understandings of these events also began to evolve. It is believed that many abusers used the trappings of Satanism as a way to instill fear in their victims as opposed to any sort of genuine allegiance to a system of belief. There are a few instances of criminals claiming they committed a crime in the name of Satan, but these were dismissed as using the devil made me do it as a defense. Perhaps these criminals hoped that they would be classified as mentally ill and given a lesser punishment. Additionally, some youth may have used occult or satanic symbols while committing acts of vandalism for shock value or simply to feel rebellious. Studies on the psychological effects of rock music and role-playing games showed that they weren't driving kids to commit suicide or causing them to become mass-murdering devil worshippers. But while the satanic panic did eventually fade, it has been suggested that it never really went away. There have been other things that have faced similar accusations such as the card game Magic the Gathering, the Harry Potter books, and even the card game Pokemon. In a more serious note, we also have the current conspiracy theory of QAnon, which claims that the world is being secretly controlled by a group of satanic pedophiles. Well, this will conclude this episode of the Strange and Interesting podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time... Stay strange and stay interesting. You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at poigamestudio.com. Follow us on Twitter. At POI Game Studio, look us up on Facebook, and email us at POI Game Studio at gmail.com.